Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Jeff Sire, and with me today is Mike McPeak. Hello. Uh, Julie is off in San Francisco this week, so we're soloing it, just the two guys. This is a testosterone-filled, uh, testosterone-only uh, podcast this week. So we're going to be talking about the movie Alien. Uh, and the synopsis that we have is uh, the crew of a commercial deep space mining ship investigating a suspected SOS land on a distant planet and discover a nest of strange eggs. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like while Julie's away, the guys are going to play with bugs, although I think she'd probably <laughs> enjoy this episode too. But Yes. So what did you think of, uh, for our, uh, our listeners, uh, Mike had never seen these before. And just watch them. Did you watch them back to back? Yeah, a couple days in between. But yeah, I watched the first one, then I watched the second one. And um, you know, I've I've seen all the, the the tropes and all the stuff that they have on there. The aliens bursting out of the stomachs and all that stuff. So I've seen all the uh, the kind of the highlights of it. But I've never actually seen the whole movie from beginning to end. Um, and so you know, that was certainly an experience. You know, I kind of know knew what was coming. Problem was, I just didn't know when it was coming or exactly what to expect. So yeah. it was certainly a learning experience as I went through it. I have to say that this is probably my favorite um, sci-fi property there is. Like, I like all of the movies. I like even the Alien versus Predator stuff. Like, it's I the one thing that. Uh, I'm not an especially big fan of because of all because the movies have all had uh, um, different directors. Um, there doesn't. This is unlike Star Wars or or even the the most of Star Trek in that both of those franchises had one kind of uh, dad who kind of guided them for years. Whereas this has kind of gone from one person to another, so they don't hang together as tightly as Star Wars or Star Trek as a franchise. Because when you start to look at them, things kind of drift from movie to movie a bit. But other than that, I love this series. Yeah, I see they kind of use some... Um, um, uh, uh patching cement here, let's say, that for, to bridge the two movies, where they just said uh, when they went into the second movie, 57 years have, has elapsed. So I think that's kind of their way of saying, let's just kind of wipe the board clean and kind of start over again. And, you well, know, and hopefully yeah. it'll kind of cover up any, you know, continuity problems a person may yeah. have. The first and second movies are probably the best of the whole series for for – uh, kind of hanging together and making a logical sense from one to the other. But once you get into some of the next movies, they're like the aliens change a bit through, I don't want to spoil it for, for you, Mike, but, uh, <laughs> but like uh, it seems that the aliens, when they're impregnated, that they, they, there seems to be some sort of input that the host has in the way of DNA. So the aliens look different if they're, if they're, like in the second one, depending on the version you see, the uh, the host is either a dog or an ox. So the, the alien takes on this kind of quadruped sort of look to it. Um, and then in the fourth movie, for no seeming reason at all, it becomes like this aquatic monster. Like it just – each director seems to like, oh, well, we'll just take it in this little bit of you know different direction. So – which is – 
it's okay it, that it has its own flavor, but when you look at it as a whole series, it doesn't really uh, hang together as well as as I personally would have liked. But well, I don't mind if a director has you know brings his own vision to it. You know, like I said, as long as there, it, it, as long as it sort of works and you don't question it too hard, you know, I'm okay with that kind of stuff. And um, now the first the director for the first movie was uh, Ridley Scott. He's done a lot of uh, uh, science fiction. Uh, movies he did uh, uh blade runner which i rather right. like and i'm trying to think what else other ones that he's done mm. um but you know he's and then he's uh did uh kind of hosted that series on the science channel about the uh uh prophets of uh science fiction right uh, and did a bunch of those i mean he he's one of these people that likes you know good science fiction and the first movie was kind of a suspense thriller i guess you said there wasn't a, there wouldn't be a lot of there wasn't a lot of blood and gore in that, well, except for the alien popping out. But it wasn't like, you know, uh, limbs being ripped apart and uh, everything. Yeah, the, it is <clears throat> It is really unusual in that uh, the sequel is a completely different genre. Like the first one really is a, monst- a suspense monster movie, and the second one is like a, almost like a war movie. Uh, it's really, really unusual where you have a sequel – in a completely different genre, I uh, I don't even know if I can think of any other movies that does it right. Yeah, because they always want to try and uh, actually, it's kind of a brave thing to do because you, you know you you always want to take a flavor from the uh, the first movie to make sure that the second movie is is a success <laughs> to just kind of break the mold and do something. Uh, I won't say completely different, but you know the the genre and the style is certainly different. That was kind of a calculated risk, but you know the movie in the second or the director in the second one was. Uh, Kirk Cameron and he uh, takes a lot of risks and does interesting things. So I th- in that case, I think it probably worked, or I know it worked well uh, yeah. for him to be directing that one. The second one is John Cameron or John Cameron. Yeah, yeah it, Kirk, Kirk Cameron's the uh, <laughs> actor. the uh, yeah actor. Yeah, from Growing Pains or whatever it was. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Don't want to get any hate mail for getting yeah. that one wrong. So, <laughs> but. Uh, one of the other reasons to bring it bring us back to kind of the tech aspect, um, the, one of the other reasons why I really like this series is I personally I think they really present a believable future. Like some of the things that I have, like uh, when when we talk about Star Wars, you know, okay, lightsabers. I don't see a really a future at any time where you know even if they could come up with that, you know. Why would you use a lightsaber when you can just have a you know blaster or something? You know, Star Trek. I don't think there's ever going like now that we've developed uh, economics. I can't see a time when human beings are ever going to you know get rid of money and just you know do things out of the goodness of our hearts. I think money is is here to stay. It's going to be around in some form or another. Um, so things like that. But like in this, in Alien, and especially the first two movies in the franchise, I think to me. This is one of the most realistic uh, portrayals of the future. Like the people are still people. They, the uh, especially in the first one that those that uh, I can't think of the Henry Dean Stanton. I think it was, yeah. but him and Yafit Koto. They're always saying, "Okay, well, what's my share? What's in this for me?" It's like it's a, they are very much. This is a, a blue collar crew of a mining ship. It's uh, it's really, you know, to to me, you could have. Uh, Whoever wrote the film, I think it was Dan O'Bannon, I I wouldn't have been surprised if he went out to an oil rig and just, you know, looked at how the guys 
interact and said, you know, and took a cue from that. Like this is really believable interactions. Like the people really are people. Yeah, that, he just went to a uh, a steel town uh, a bar somewhere and just hung out yeah. for a while and wrote down dialogue. Yeah, exactly. And after a while, I mean, I, um, uh, Yapit Koto's character, I kind of wanted to slap him after all because about the only thing he was worried about was his share. And at some point, that was really kind of starting to grate on my nerves that uh, – <laughs> You know, I get that you know you're out there to make money, but you know you, you got to have a little bit beyond that uh, sometimes. Yeah. So, as for the crew, some something else that we might uh, talk about for tech is in each of these two movies, um, they have an android. Now, in the first one, they the rest of the crew does not realize that Ash is an android. Uh, and in the second one, everybody knows up front that Bishop is an android. But uh, how did how did you think that the android uh, aspect element fit into the uh, the two movies? Well, you know, in the first one, um, you know, his um, I'm, you know, I'm kind of st- stepping back here and looking at all the characters for a second here before I zoom in on him. Um, about the only one there that uh, in the first movie that you know you could really warm up to was. Um, uh, Sigourney Weaver's character, uh, she seemed to be the only. Well, there were some other ones there, but you had the um, Ash, who was the the, the uh, android, and you know he, he was uh, part of the the company, um, and he was on a secret mission, which was to retrieve one of these aliens and bring him back for the company, so they could turn him into a biotech weapon. Right. Um, and so. Um, you know, when they found that out, um, that he was just basically a corporate shill, um, then I didn't feel so bad about him, you know, buying it in the end there. Um, but, uh, yeah, in the whole thing there, um, yeah, his character worked pretty well. You never really knew that he was an alien, or not an alien, but an android. Um, although his demeanor was rather, I guess he was a scientist, so it was rather, you know, like some scientists, your typical uh, scientist, kind of cut and dried, not very emotional, not very humorous. Uh, so, you know, I guess that kind of hid the fact that he was kind of an android. And, um, you know, and, yeah, once you get into the movie and you find out what his motives are, then you do kind of uh, basically end up despising the guy. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think... Do you ever think that uh, we will ever get to a point where we would even want to have really realistic androids like that? Uh, I don't know. I, mm, the, I'm trying to think of a use case scenario where that would be good. The only thing I could think of would be like, and I don't know how if it would even be profitable to do that, but let's say you're in a, uh, a contagious situation uh, with some sort of spreading bacteria that you could send in an artificial life form like that that would still be comforting to the patients that they have to deal with there in quarantine, but they would not be, you know, affected by the disease. But outside of that, I really don't know why you would need to have an android that looked like a human. Most of the times, yeah. it's going to be like a mining robot. You really don't care what it looks like as long as it can dig ore yeah. and, and do that. So except for a few certain use case, uh, you know, situations, like probably in the healthcare field, perhaps, I really don't see the necessity of ha- unless you wanted to send in spies or something like they did with this movie yeah no real reason to have uh, to really build androids like that except to yeah. say that you could i think the same thing like really one of the only reasons to have an android that looks and acts and you know mimics a human would be to for deception 
like otherwise th- there would be so many better you know uses for it like uh you know like a, a you know a, a, a hand with five uh, four fingers and a thumb like there's much more usable grasping tools than that you know like it just i, I just don't see it as uh as practical right yeah, the only thing would be like perhaps uh, like the space uh, program was where, um, you know, there was a lot of stuff that came from the space program um, that we use nowadays. And, you know, maybe the androids would be the same way that you'd have to come up with a uh, lifelike skin, which would be beneficial to, like, say, burn victims. Uh, maybe researching by developing uh, androids, you would, uh, for helping the. Uh, replacement of bones, let's say, uh, that are broken or deteriorated or something. Um, you know, there you, could be. But some... are you talking about using androids as a method to to grow these things, or no? Just kind of um, by building the androids, you learn to come up with these artificial things that would be beneficial to oh, human oh, beings. Okay, I see. Yeah, kind of offshoots because you have to have a skin for the android. Well, if it'll work on the android, maybe it'll work as a replacement skin on a, a, a human burn victim, or let's say that somebody has bone cancer. Well, by building androids, lifelike androids, maybe you could come up with an artificial bone uh, because these things have to look and mimic human beings. I, I'm trying to remember. I guess Ash sat down and ate with them. So, um, although he was filled with like a, a white goo, so I don't know exactly what that was. You know, all about. Maybe the insides are different. Right, but I, I could see a few uh, spin-off um, texts from building uh, working with androids, but to actually just go and build them and put them in the, uh, amongst humans, eh? I'm not seeing it. I guess. Yeah. Well, some of the other tech that they had um, in both movies, they had uh, uh, something we discussed on. I think it was actually before you were with uh, Julie and I, but we had a podcast where we talked about cryogenics. Um, but they don't really go into a lot of how it works other than they just, they just kind of, uh, wake up in their little eggshell thing. Yeah. They, they just kind of go to sleep. Well, and we kind of touched it at, uh, cause weren't they doing more or less the same thing in the forever wars too, where, um, people were kind of put into a stasis of some sort and then they are, um, woken up at a later time. Yeah. Yeah. There's not, yeah. There's not a whole lot of detail about how it works or anything like that. They do say, like, uh, is it? I think it's in the first movie. Somebody gets sick when they wake up, don't they? Um, I think so. I'm mm. trying to remember. Yeah, it seemed like they were woken up and, uh, yeah, somebody was kind of retching somewhere. So it, it um, <laughs> although the, the, in the second movie when the, uh, they're putting the little girl in before they go, head out to wherever they're supposed to be going, um. She says, just like sleeping, and the girl says, well, I dream, and, you know, uh, I think Sigourney Weaver said, yeah, yeah, or something like that. Uh, so maybe it, maybe it is kind of like an extended sleep. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, the, and, you know, I suppose they, um, they used that in the, the second movie because they said 57 years had elapsed. Well, I'm trying to see, um, Okay, the first Alien movie was made in 1979, and then the second Alien movie was made in, uh, I think, 86 it was. So you had a yeah. few years difference there, so maybe that's, um, and I don't know how much Sigourney Weaver aged in, you know, five years, but, uh, you know, that might be something to kind of help whatever changes she might have gone through to kind of uh, compensate for that, too. 
she looks pretty much the same, I think, between the two movies, doesn't she? You know? I think so. I'll have to go back yeah. and rewatch them. But you know, her her character, I was happy to see. Um, that's not something you see a lot: a strong woman in a movie. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the time, the uh, in especially like the first one, where it was kind of a suspense horror film, um, you have the women just kind of sitting there uh, screaming and whining and being completely useless. Uh, at least you know she was a had the sense of. Uh, it wasn't like she was necessarily a strong woman, but she reacted to uh, the situation around her and didn't become paralyzed by it and uh, you know, yeah. reacted to the situation and stepped up and uh, you know to uh, to the game and did what was necessary to survive. And I think uh, on one of the uh, special editions for the first movie, um, the making the character of Ripley into a female character, that was really, really late in the whole process. Uh, I think it was just maybe right around the time that they were starting to do casting. Um, yeah, it was really, really late in the uh, the process. And they just said, oh, you know, like, well, why couldn't it be a woman? And uh, they were already doing a movie that was fairly unconventional, like a monster movie set in space. And like Star Wars really opened up the whole element of sci-fi. Like, if what I, I think if it wasn't for Star Wars success in '77, this movie wouldn't have been made at all. Hmm. So, yeah, because they had always kind of stuck to the, you know, I guess you'd call it kind of the um, the Flash Gordon uh, um, formula for um, uh, science fiction movies, where you had the uh, action hero and the helpless uh, woman and the evil villain, and um, yeah, and Star Wars kind of uh, broke with that by having a strong heroine and um, to go with a strong hero, and then this one they just decided to combine them both and have a, a strong woman, you know, and a, and a heroine there. Yeah, <clears throat> I think you're right. I think before Star Wars, they were really in the rut of, you know, the old serial type Flash Gordon. That's what sci-fi was, and you couldn't deviate from that. And I think when uh, when you had the success of Star Wars, then if it wasn't for Star Wars, this movie, if it, if it was made, it would have been made of uh, like a, a monster movie in a uh, you know suburban uh, you know subdivision or something like that, where somebody gets contracts this you know thing and it bursts out of their chest and stuff like that. It would have been a monster movie. Like that, yeah, and I say, I, and especially when you get to the well, even the first and the second one, I, I had to look up to see when it was made because the one theme that I kind of noticed there, and it was kind of the the thing of the times, a, a big distrust for the military and for corporations because that kind of plays both in into both of these movies that the you have your evil corporation and your kind of stupid big bungling military, you know, if it moves, shoot. Uh, shoot it kind of mentality, and they uh, both uh, both movies kind of played on that uh, that theme of the times, right? And uh, the corporation is a theme through pretty much the whole series. Um, the you actually they they name the company almost accidentally. It's in the second movie when they land. Excuse me. They make their way past, uh, and you can see a sign on the wall that says has the the symbol uh, the W and Y, and says Wayland Utani building better worlds. And that that I think was just done as like a movie prop. I don't think it was. Or, oh, sorry, like a uh, by the the craft department came up with that, and they just got it approved. And then Wayland Utani really has become like a 
kind of like a throughput for the whole thing. Like in the movie that came out last summer, Prometheus, that was uh, the Whalen Corporation. And in one of the Alien vs. Predator movies, um, they find the Predator's shoulder-launched missile thing or laser or whatever it is. And uh, the movie ends with them uh, discussing what they should do with this. What do you think, Miss Yutani? So, like, it's just that's kind of like a... And the evil corporation has been pulling the strings ever since sort of thing. Yeah, and, you know, they always kind of, yeah, they, uh, except for the, the sign that you see in these two movies, I've never uh, heard the name referred to, but they always refer to it as the company with cer- a certain amount of disgust behind their voice. Right. Um, something that's in both the first and second movie, uh, it might be in all of them actually, but they have uh, motion detectors. That was one of the things that, is kind of almost you know vital to the whole uh, uh, progress of the plot in the, in the like the that horrifying little dot in the uh, in the first movie where you can see where Dallas is going and then you can see the dot closing on him and then all of a sudden he's gone. Or like in the second movie where you have this uh, these big blobs coming at you and they're trying to figure out where they're at and they're looking around for them because they're not on the level that they're at, but they yeah. finally figure out where they're coming from. So, um, okay, the, um, those are the ones you meant. I thought um, when you first said motion detectors, I was thinking of the, the sentries that they had in the second movie that they put in the air ducts to uh, stop the, um, the automatic firing uh, centuries that they have right well i think those those motion detectors were just like a, a version of the handheld ones they had except for they were hooked into the uh the guns yeah and then they just kind of swiveled and fired it was kind of like the um uh, uh the the sentries from the the portal games where they just sat there and uh spit out machine guns uh until yeah. they were done yeah a lot um that was something that uh we said before we started recording was that uh if you if you've seen the movie Aliens and you don't know what we're what we're talking about, that scene with the uh, sentry guns is on. It's in the director's cut or the special edition. It wasn't in the. Uh, I don't believe it was in the theatrical re- release, and it's not in some of the versions. Um, after the dropship crashes, they're taking inventory. He said, "Well, the bad news is that we you know only have so many rounds. We only have so many this." And in some version, it stops there, but in the director's cut, uh, then Hicks or Hudson says, the good news is we've got these two sentry guns. And then they go and set them up. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as far as tech goes, you know, it, again, it's kind of a reoccurring theme we've been having here is um, we do have suits here again, but it's on the uh, the cargo bay. It's the, uh, uh, and just to tease people a little bit, it plays an integral part in the uh, second movie there. I won't give it away, but um, the big cargo carrying suits that a person can uh, strap themselves into, and that's like you're walking, but with this big exoskeleton around you. And then you could use that to pick up big, heavy objects like they were putting uh cargo uh, containers up into the uh, the ship to get ready and so one person you wouldn't have to be driving like a forklift around you could walk <clears throat> excuse me walk around like a regular person just inside this big uh, uh, exoskeleton affair with big yeah. clamping arms that you could uh, clamp their uh, fingers I guess you call them that you could clamp on the things and pick them up and they would rotate and you could do all that by uh, joystick controls from there and just by moving your arms and your feet you could control the, the movement of it and you know that I um, you know, and I think they're um, they're actually starting to use devices like that in the army for uh, 
yeah. moving around heavy objects and stuff. But uh, you know that I, I thought was in um, that some actual practical tech that I would like to see you know at some point because people do have to move heavy things around. Sometimes a, a forklift isn't just exactly the right thing you want to use for that kind of job. Right. That was that's another one of the things where I think it was. Uh, you said the word exactly. Like I think it's a very practical future that it shows, um, and that's kind of starts with Ridley Scott. Like his whole. You look at uh, at Alien and Blade Runner. They're both kind of real, pretty practical interpretations of where he thinks the future is going. Well, it's it's you could see that future happening, um, you know, like Star Wars. You kind of have a hard time believing that, but this is one that you know, if you know, society keeps going down the path that it does, or that science takes the the path that you know we seem to be on. This could be a, a future that would actually uh, happen and take place. So yeah, it does. You feel comfortable in it because it's not something that you have to reimagine. <clears throat> it's just kind of an extension of what we are already living. Because you know, look at the political turmoil and some of the kind of sleazy business uh, businesses and companies that we have. It's not too hard for you to look at that movie and go, "Oh yeah, I kind of recognize those you know ideas there—the slimy company, the you know this other stuff." Um, so it makes a person feel comfortable when you're watching because you don't have to try and grasp new ideas. Yeah. We were talking about the uh, sentry guns. What do you what do you think about the other weapons that they had? The the flamethrowers, those were pretty kind of standard. I don't think the, they didn't have backpack type World War II flamethrowers. But uh, other than that, like I think they were they weren't too spacey. No, and actually in the first movie, I think that was probably the only weapon that they used. I don't remember them firing guns. They they had some kind of cattle prod shock oh, yeah. thing, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was yeah. It was both but that the, was that was like improvised, though. Oh yeah, that was something they rigged up. But yeah, the two yeah. Um, basically uh, the two prominent tech features in the first movie was rather low tech. You had a flamethrower and an industrial strength cattle prod. Uh, no bullets, no you know rail guns or no uh, you know machine guns or anything like that. You just had good old flames and electricity. Yeah. But then, uh, like in the first one, they're on a mining ship, so yeah, they're you're, not, you're gonna, not expecting they're going to have weapons. So. Well, up to a point, you know, in case you have to defend yourself. But yeah, you're not going to expect you no know, military type weapons. But uh, I guess I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more gunplay in the first movie. You know, a good shootout, you know, is always always good. But you know, a flamethrower that's um, that has a nice visual <clears throat> appeal to it. Yeah. Uh, now in the second movie, there's a lot more weapons there. So they had the sentry guns, uh, but then just like just on the dropship, what they they had some sort of a chain gun on it, and then they had uh, missiles and all kinds of stuff. But that was there was nothing really kind of spacey or too sci-fi on the the dropship. I don't remember any laser weapons or anything like that, right? No, and you know the vehicle that the the dropship puts down for them to drive around in. I'm looking at it and go, you know, we're however many centuries into the future, and uh, it's still big bad iron to the rescue there. Whatever they had their vehicle plated with, just you know, uh, nothing fancy. It's just a big armored vehicle with big thick um, um, solid tires for to drive around in. Uh, you know, I could actually see the military using something like that um, uh, nowadays. Yeah. The only thing that I, with that that I thought was a little bit uh, unrealistic is it was so low to the ground. Yeah. Like, 
if it went over any sort of a bump, like it'd be oh, high centered. <laughs> yeah, it'd be hung up on it, right? Yeah, of course. You know, the other, the flip side of that is, though, by keeping a low center of gravity, it won't tip as easy. Yeah, uh, but they should have probably lifted. The, of course, you know, the thing is about having, you know, it's always a series of compromises. Having it low to the ground, you couldn't get anything under there uh, to flip it over. Yeah. Uh, on, on the other hand, like. We only saw it in that one roll, so it could very well have had some sort of suspension that would raise it up if it if it needed to be. So, um, yeah, it was probably just a low rider, and you know, um, with the air shocks back there. And then what you didn't see is probably when they weren't filming, they'd probably sit there and jump it up and down. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the coolest weapon that I thought that they had was the smart gun. I when I saw this for the first time, I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Uh, they again, like they don't explain how it works or anything, but it obviously didn't really have ammunition. It just had that power pack thing that they handed out. So I don't know if it's firing plasma or what it is. Um, the smart, or sorry, the pulse rifles had some sort of ammunition that they had to load. And it had the grenades that they had to feed in, but the smart guns, it seemed like the only ammunition they had was that little power core or whatever that they plugged into it, and then it was <laughs> rock and roll after that. Oh, yeah, because when they went into the uh, – to find out where the – they were following the column, the signal to see what had happened to them, they went in there and they made them take out the uh, uh, the part that shot projectiles because they was afraid of – causing the place to blow up and then they were only i think at that point they were only using flamethrowers and sidearms i think yeah and and there it was just a cartridge that they popped out because the 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 marines and um you know and i i just thought the way that they carried that weapon was kind of interesting just from the hip um it's not a um you're not using that for accuracy this is just for spreading uh uh f- fire to uh when you're encountering a mass enemy or something they like that. they don't carry it from the hip they they carry it on a vest if you see it's got an umbilical arm okay uh that goes out from their chest cuz when when drake gets hit he he has some sort of quick release so you can see he dumps the whole thing and when he do, when he drops the gun you can see he's he unloads that whole vest off his chest. It's like a whole, you know, chest and back brace that are on him, and it's all mounted to this kind of like a umbilical arm. I remember reading somewhere that they actually took the uh, mount from a steady cam, and that was what the uh, the gun they mounted the gun to. So it was it was just modified off of the kind of steady cam harness that they use. Well, because when they're first walking with that, and there's that, uh, I can't remember her name, but the one uh, female Marine. Um, Vasquez. Yes. Um, she's just kind of got it there, and she's kind of waving it in front of her there. And like I said, it's not something you bring up to the shoulder for, like, sniper work. This is something that you use to lay down fire um, when you're in a, a battle situation, cover fire or, um, you know, uh, a scatter shot to try and keep an enemy down while you're um, retreating or trying to find a strategic point to, you know, uh, make your next stand from. Yeah. Yeah. So what else did they have? They So they had uh, some sort of hand grenades that they used. They used those. And then they had the, the pulse rifle. Um, well, and the one thing, you know, we always ask, what piece of tech do you want from this movie? And um, me being kind of... Um, Having sort of a mechanical background because I farmed, I've worked in a potato plant uh, doing uh, potato chip 
factory doing maintenance. So I've always had to do the kind of maintenance work. And they carried around this little basic pocket welder. Um, and that I would just love to have because they, it was just small. You could pull it out, but you could sit there, and they were welding seam shut, and they were using it to cut open things with. And just something small that you could carry around with you like that, especially if you're working on like a piece of farm equipment out on a uh, mm-hmm. in a field somewhere. You wouldn't have to take your gas welder out there. You wouldn't have to have an, a generator and an arc welder. You could just pull this little thing out. And just and it had a, uh, the built-in shield. Yes. And then... Yeah. So then you can just sit there and weld. I mean, something like that would just be, you know, way cool and way handy. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, we might as well talk about the actual ships that they had, too. So the the first one was the was the, the Nostromo was the first one and the Sulaco was in the second movie. I don't remember the second one, but I know the Nostromo was, yeah, the, the first yeah. movie. And that was the big, um, big ore ship. Um, and... They never specified, um, and I guess it's not important, but I, I, were they mining like asteroids or would they go to a planet, land this thing, extract the ore, or would they hover above with the ship, send something down to bring the ore back up? Anyway, when they were done, they just brought the whole kit and caboodle back um, to uh, the Earth or wherever they were going to um, uh, extract the ore or whatever they were going to do with it. Yeah, I don't know. Like when in in the first movie – did they bring that whole ship down to the planet, or did they go down in some sort of... They had a shuttle. Uh, they had a shuttle? That would kind of okay. like... It was like stuck in a pocket on the ship, and they could disengage it, and that's how they went down to the planet with that. And the okay. uh, the mining ore ship stayed in orbit up there. Because that, that mining ship, I think that's something that... Uh, well, certainly by the looks of it, that's something that was built in space and was never meant to go into... Uh, into an atmosphere like it's I, I thought that was a very realistic uh interpretation of of what uh, a spaceship is probably going to end up looking like because you don't have to it doesn't have to be streamlined it doesn't care like it, it looked like a, a floating castle there was stuff sticking out off of it all over the place right yeah it was big and bulky yeah, it wouldn't be like the kind of thing that you'd want to try and maneuver through in, in the atmosphere unless you had some really big um uh, boosters to lower it in there because that thing would burn up on uh, you know re-entry trying to go through an atmosphere just or be ripped apart um, just because of the way it was shaped. So yeah, it looks like something to stay in space, and you know they never got into it. That's why I was wondering if they were mining asteroids because you could just uh, depending upon the size of the asteroid, maybe you just pull up to it, bring it inside, work on it. Because there wasn't yeah. a very big crew in there. It was uh, what six people. Uh, I had a picture, so there's three, six, seven. Seven, okay. Um, yeah, and so um, it wasn't a very big crew, so I don't know either that or, the, um, like I said, they didn't elaborate. Uh, I don't think the shuttle could go down and do much mining, but maybe they had, like, robotic um, ore ships that they could go down on a planet surface, extract the stuff that they need, send them up by uh, means of that to the ship to be uh, stored in there. I think you're you're right. I think it was. Uh, um, I think they were probably mining asteroids or something in space, because um, they they certainly didn't look like they would be capable of hauling ore up in that shuttle or anything like that. So yeah, and you know, like I said, they never mentioned anything, but you also didn't see a lot of other. Um, 
you know, ships there, because when they were talking about their escape route, they made it sound uh, like the only, and maybe an ore ship wouldn't be that viable anyway, but the shuttle was their only viable means of uh, escape from the, the ship. Right. Yeah. Um, so we might as well talk about the alien. Um, yeah, who you never saw a lot of in the first movie, just kind of brief glimpses. Yeah. And even in the second movie, um, it's more like fleeting shots. It's like uh, There's a few scenes where you kind of see the whole thing, but um, most of the times it's, it's kind of like flashing scenes uh, 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 of the alien. Um, like I say, not just a full-on uh, shot of it. Yeah. We should should probably say that uh, the alien was was designed by um, I can't remember his first name Geiger Geiger H R Geiger I guess um, based on his biomechanics drawings like if you ever like if you're not aware of who he is just Google his name and as soon as you see it if if you've seen this stuff before you know exactly. Like uh, the, a lot of the art direction for anything to do with the aliens came from his artwork. It's very similar to the alien kind of look, and he, I believe, uh, he was he coined the term, or at least used the term before even before Alien of biomechanics. So like his stuff is biological, but it's it's very technical as well. Like it, you can and you can see in the alien like. You can see it looks like uh, there's a metallic look to things, and it looks like there's cables, and it's biological, but at the same time, it looks very machine-like. Yeah, kind of like one of the exoskeletons, basically. Um, yeah. Uh, just by its design. Now, the one thing that I don't know, I mean, maybe I'd have to see his thinking, but it always kind of drove me nuts when it would open its mouth, one set of teeth would go up. And then a second set of teeth would slide from the back out. I mean, it's, a, it's certainly an interesting effect. Uh, just from a practical point of view, I don't... To me, to me I, it didn't seem like it was e- efficient. Um, no. I, mean, I think it's there for the scare value, I think, yeah. Basically, the only you know re- rationale I could come up with is that the front, if it was attacking something to eat, the inner teeth could grab it, pull it in, and then the outside teeth could uh, rip it off, and then they could, you know, uh, that way you wouldn't have to have, because um, I, I don't remember what it did have for hands, or appendages, let's call it. Oh, yeah, it had, like, normal, I think they were even five-fingered, Okay. Hands, yeah. Okay, well, I was going to say that would eliminate the need for having to, uh, um, you know, grab a hold of something with your hands to eat it. You could just, like I say, grab it with one, pull it into the uh, second one, and the, the first set of teeth could, uh, you know, rip it off and chew it. And maybe that would leave the other two hands for holding the prey down while you are eating. Um, yeah. Because I don't see that it uh, actually uh, took the time to actually, like, humanely slaughter anything. It was just kind of like, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat you. Yeah. And I think even through the whole series, you're really left, like even with the the movie Prometheus that came out last summer, uh, you're really, it almost leaves it to you, uh, the viewer, to decide, you know, where the aliens come from. Um, like even with Prometheus, you're kind of left wondering, like, did, did, were these aliens created or were they designed or, you know, they, they certainly don't seem like they ever evolved naturally. Right. They kind of, um, 
Yeah, or they kind of stopped evolving at a point because, you know, they're kind of reminiscent of the, uh, like, the velociraptor dinosaurs and some of them, uh, just, you know, scrawnier and, you know, more fearsome looking, but they're kind of along that line. But, you know, eventually the dinosaurs either, you know, evolved or died, and it looked like these aliens are just kind of stuck at a point where they, uh, unless they're, they're still on their evolutionary path here, but it looked like all they are is killing machines, killing and, yeah. and breeding machines, basically. Well, I read something a while ago where uh, they were talking about the like uh, viruses, and they were saying that Ebola is kind of on the verge of being a, a virus that's uh, too good. Because it kills people so fast that it doesn't spread. <laughs> so, and they and I think in a way the the aliens they're probably probably have to be kind of created because they're such an efficient killing machine. They would, you know, kill their hosts so quickly that uh, that they wouldn't spread to anywhere else. Yeah, you know, unless they're. Yeah, unless there's well, yeah, because even if they were to invade a, a planet like ours, eventually they would run out of hosts. Um, yeah, and then what would they do? Um, yeah. And they don't. Well, like I say, they don't get in the nitty gritty, and they let you just imagine that. But I mean, what what kind of lifespans do they have? Do they, are they long lived, short lived? Um, they kind of seem to have like a hive mentality with the, you know, the mother of all aliens. They're spewing out um, pods. Um, don't even want to quite call them eggs, but um, with the the face sucking uh, thing in there, that then then implants the um, it's not the eggs, the eggs produce the thing that attaches to your face and puts the pod down in your stomach. That's where the aliens come. So it's like yes. a two stage birth uh, yeah. or reproduction uh, reproductive uh, cycle here, which just doesn't seem horribly efficient. No, and. Uh once you see the second movie and you have the idea about like a queen alien that's laying eggs, it almost makes you think differently about the first one. Was like because I've wondered like were there was by the end of the second sorry by the end of the first film was there more than one alien there? Like had there you know did that first alien turn itself into a queen and was laying eggs? Fat like you don't know how fast the turnover is, right? Yeah, and yeah, there just seemed to be yeah, like I say, one alien stalking them all, but you never all that there was was the pods there. You never saw. Maybe that was their their way of uh, doing things that they just laid all these eggs and eventually one of them once the colonists came down in the second movie and they were infected. Maybe one of them became the queen and started spewing out more. Um, so that they would have more pods to infect people with. Yeah, they, they never really spelled it out because um, all they did was there was a ship with pods in there and um, they discover them and it, it, it goes from there. But uh, it does make you wonder their their whole life cycle on how it works. Right. Ooh. I did like the uh, the fact that uh, because of where because because I work at a nuclear power plant that's one of the things that they always talk about uh you know we you always follow the rules no matter what and uh, the most important time not to relax the rules is in, in an emergency and once they had uh i can't remember john hurt's character when he, once he had the face hugger on him they quarantined him they weren't 
going to allow him onto the ship. And it was only because of Ash that he gets onto the ship. And then you find out later that Ash was the android and it was he was actually that was part of his whole thing was he, he was supposed to get a specimen back no matter what. Um, so I, I kind of always I've always liked that that part of the movie in that uh, they were following the rules. And if they had, everything would have turned out OK if it wasn't for Ash. Yeah, Ash, the evil corporate shill. Yes, the traitorous, <laughs> traitorous android. Yeah, who you know probably didn't get near as uh, bad a demise as he probably should have. But uh... yeah. one of the uh, things that I hadn't noticed until you know I just happened to be sitting with the Wikipedia entry up for Alien, they filmed Alien for eleven million dollars. That's crazy. Yeah, like with, with the amount, like how good that movie looks. That's insane. Yeah, they must have gotten an industrial site somewhere and just filmed yeah. it. And then, like I say, and I think you know part of what helped was that you didn't see the alien a lot, only a few. Because you know, it was more uh, uh, kind of a, I guess you call it a Hitchcock style film where the suspense is in your mind. You really don't see anything to- until you get towards the end of the movie. Yeah. So you know that was, and that's a. You know, using your own mind is kind of a cheap special effect, um, and so you know, they, and they probably spent the rest of their money coming up with that um, the alien at the at the end of the, uh, the the movie, and so I could see them doing it, but, but yeah, that is awfully cheap for that kind of movie. Yeah, well, this is kind of a tech thing for uh, for the the filming end of it, but I know one of the ways that they saved money was uh, that whole scene with the space jockey in the first movie, where he's in the, the alien that's kind of in the pilot's chair. Um, they did not build that set to full size. What they built it to a smaller scale, and they the people that you see in the spacesuits are children. <laughs> so I think it was a couple of the uh, the I think it was might have been Ridley Scott's kids or something. It was some of the uh, uh, anyways. They had kids in those spacesuits so that they wouldn't have to build the thing as big. Okay, that's yeah. kind of wild. Uh, hopefully, they didn't violate any cha- uh, child labor laws along. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that is one way to build it half scale and then put kids in it. That's one way to save money. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what else do we have for tech? That's I think that I think that's all that I had down there. Yeah, I think you know we covered most of it. Um, the, yeah, the biomechanics and androids and cryogenics and the motion detectors. Um, yeah. And um, you know, like I say, in my in my favorite piece from the the second movie was the pocket welder and and the uh, and the, the uh, exoskeleton. I thought was uh, a pretty neat and, and actually possible uh, a viable piece of tech in the real world. Yeah, I don't know what – I think if I had to pick one piece of tech, I always thought that smart gun was about the coolest thing I ever saw. So I think I would pick the smart gun. Well, any gun that can uh, is smart is is a good thing, I think. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you have anything else to say about uh, – well, no, it's just, you know, I guess I would kind of summarize it by, yeah, it, uh, you know, like I said, the two movies are different styles, but they do work well together. And, you know, you watch the first one, you kind of get the sense of suspense. And then if you watch the second movie, uh, you know, right behind it, then you get that kind of uh, action, um, shoot 'em up thriller uh, type of thing. So even though they're, they're two different types, I think they really work well together if you watch them. And, you know, it, 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 and some of the characters there, you're, you're, Rooting for uh, like Riddle, or for uh, 
Ripley and the, and the kid to make it, and you're waiting for the others to get their just dessert. So, uh, you know, there's a little bit in there for you know uh, for everyone to watch. Right. Well, one of the other things that I like about the series is it doesn't fill in every single hole. Like last summer when I went this when I went and saw Prometheus, you know, I almost left the movie with more questions than I had in the first place, and it's like it it doesn't it leaves a lot of it up to you. And, uh, you know, it's certain Prometheus certainly makes you think about these first two movies in a, a lot different way. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't really explain a whole lot. Like it still leaves a lot up to you to kind of figure out yourself. Well, because the way I remember it, I, you know, I haven't seen Prometheus. I've heard a few things about it. it wasn't necessarily sold as a prequel, was it? Uh, see, I heard I heard some things about that. One was. Uh, uh oh who's the woman Sigourney Weaver I couldn't think of her name for a second uh Sigourney Weaver uh got herself inserted as executive producer I don't I think it might have been starting with the second movie or certainly after the second movie and that she had kind of influenced how the 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 latter movies went and between her influence uh kind of taking the movies in a direction that i don't think ridley scott was especially happy with and uh then the whole alien versus predators movies ridley scott was not keen on he was keen on taking a look at the movies again going back to that world but he didn't want he really resisted it being like an alien movie so he wanted to kind of kind of make his own movie he didn't want any input from from either the Alien vs. Predator franchise or from uh, the direction that Scorny Weaver had kind of pushed the series in. Um, so he kind of built the whole thing as that this is not a, a, a prequel or associated with them. It's just set in that kind of universe. So He kind of tap-danced tap, tap around the issue so he could kind of be part of the Alien universe without necessarily tying himself to either one. And yeah. still having his own creative uh, freedom for the vision that he saw then. Right. And, and, and if you see Prometheus, you cannot draw a direct line from P- Prometheus to Alien. Like, it's not that you, you, there's, there's nothing that happens in Prometheus where you can say, oh, well, that's, uh, that's why this happens in the movie, uh, in, the, in, mov- in the movie Alien. Like, it's just kind of the two things are completely separate uh, and don't really link to each other other than you kind of see where, you know, some of this stuff might have come from or – but it's certainly like, like that crashed alien ship that they find – it doesn't show you that ship taking off. It doesn't explain any real anything about that, really. So, was it set on that planet then, where the aliens are found? Nope, nope. Set on a completely different planet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So completely it, different place. Now it's just piqued my interest. I may have to watch it at some point and see how they connect. Yeah. There's no eggs. There's no. Uh, it's. It's very, very, very different. Um, the only kind of thing that would connect is they, they do show a ship that's like that one that they find. Um, but, uh, it, again, like it's kind of up to interpretation, but uh, I don't think that that ship that they find that's crashed is really linked in any way to the ship that 
the fleet of ships that they show in Prometheus. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it it sounds like I say it sounds interesting. It, it, it is, but it isn't. But uh, I mean, it, it is an alien part of the alien universe, but it isn't. So it would just be interesting to see how they kind of tap dance around that. Yeah. The one thing I guess that you could draw a straight line through is it really kind of drills home why Ash would know about the aliens. Uh, because the the Whalen company is involved in Prometheus. So you could say, oh, okay, well, that's obvious that the company has known about the existence of these aliens for a long time. Because so, I don't I don't know if they actually say did they say in in the movie Alien what year it is? I don't recall them. I'm trying to think. I don't recall there being a year. I think they just started out. Yeah. Without any any sort of date. Because uh, I think Prometheus was only set like I don't even know if it's a hundred years in the future. It's maybe a hundred years in the future. Uh, but the the Alien movie is. I would guess maybe 400 years in the future. That seems like a reasonable assumption, kind of giving the, you know, the fact that you're building a big space mining ship and you have, you know, more advanced weaponry. And, you know, I just assumed it was, I call it centuries in the future. I, you know, not, not elaborating too much, but I would say centuries in the future. Yeah. Well, I guess we can wrap things up then. Um, just want to tell everybody that next week we're going to be doing the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The uh, I guess we'll discuss the movie and the audiobook and uh, and the book itself. And Julie should be back. Julie's going to be back next week, right? Yeah, unless she something is. comes up. Um, so she right. should be back. Okay. So that wraps up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can check us out at scifitechtalk.com or follow us on Twitter at Sci-Fi Tech Talk. If you have any ideas or comments, please send them to scifitechtalk at gmail.com. And reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Mike, where can folks find you in cyberspace? Yeah, I can be found at uh, DSC Chipman on Twitter, or I have an about.me page at about.me slash Mike McPeak. That's M-C-P-E-E-K. Okay, and people can find me on Twitter at Bronco Sire, S-Y-E-R. So thanks for listening, and that's all for this show, so we'll see you in the future. Quirky Matter Matter. It's the Sci-Fi Tech Talk. Quirky Matter Matter.